I'm Zach Weiner. This story is titled Friendly Fire from the book collection Machine of Death. For more information, please visit machineofdeath.net. Friendly Fire by Douglas J. Lane. They pulled the woman from the padded seat with care. She wasn't the enemy. Ignorant, a buyer of the big lie, but not the root of the problem. She was somewhere north of 40. Her dark hair showed silver strands, and the beginning of crow's feet bracketed chestnut-colored eyes. Tommy noticed her fingertips, purple and tender. She was a repeater. It touched a nerve. Confusion and fear mingled on her face. Don't hurt me! She wrapped an arm around herself, a reflex of protection. Take my purse, I don't have much. We don't want your crap, Mitch said from behind the rubber face of Elvis Presley. He pushed past her. The silver head of a hammer, produced from inside Mitch's overcoat, reflected a hundred mall lights. He ripped the curtain off the booth and went to work. The hammer found its mark again and again, denting and bending and breaking the shell in the guts of the machine. Pieces clattered to the floor of the booth. Slivers of paper fluttered loose, the world's smallest victory parade. Run, Tommy told the repeater. She was transfixed by the spectacle. I needed to know, she said, empty, if it would change, if I could change it. She rubbed a thumb over the tip of her index finger. Tommy, hidden behind the John Lennon mask, positioned himself between her and the booth. Go. Now. The woman retreated into the mall. Tommy watched for uniforms from the same direction, waited, counted in his head. Let's go, Elvis. Mitch gave the device a final blow. It popped from its mounting and fell in a shower of sparks. A crowd of shoppers had become gawkers, but Tommy saw no heroes among them. Not for the machine. Knowledge is slavery, he shouted as he and Mitch retreated. Death to the machine! He heard the first cry from mall security as he crossed the threshold. Outside, Barb idled the Impala in the drop-off zone, disguised as Frank Sinatra. Old Blue Eyes bobbed behind the wheel, impatient. Mitch climbed in front. Tommy jumped headfirst into the back through the open window. Tires squealed as he pulled his feet inside. They drove down side roads and doubled back on their path twice. Mitch called the other teams on his cell. No one had been apprehended. Tommy scanned for signs of pursuit. We're clear, he told Barb. How did we do? She asked Mitch. Including ours, we knocked out 15 of them. It was better than they'd hoped. Tommy had expected 12 demolitions and at least one arrest. They'd all made it through unscathed. 15 mechanical soothsayers laid low in their wake. It was a solid night's work. Barb dropped Mitch at the corner of Watson and Fifth. He left his mask in the glove compartment, seated the front seat to Tommy, and was swallowed up by the night. Tommy grabbed the fake tags from over top the real ones. He stowed them under the front seat. He kissed Barb, relishing the response of her warm lips to his before she pulled back into traffic. Stay with me tonight? she asked. Tommy nodded. It had taken some getting used to, the casualness of their relationship. They had no commitment to each other outside their common cause against the machine. He was 19, a stew of hormones and adrenaline, and at times he wanted more than an itch-scratching lay. But while Barb would wreak havoc with him, and sleep with him, there was no romantic patter, no disposition for roses. She kept that part locked away, saying it was better that way. He didn't debate her wisdom. Sex on a regular basis was a strong dissuader of upsetting the apple cart. Barb rented an apartment over a detached garage. 
It was a cozy fit for the Impala beside the owner's moldering boxes and stray furniture, but the door locked, and the landlord who lived up the street stayed out of her business. The wooden stairs up to the door creaked under their ascent. The apartment was small, well-kept. Barb liked order. It carried over to her planning of their hit-and-run attacks. Tommy had noticed her in his anthropology class, but they met for the first time in conversation on a website called Deathics, the Ethics of the Death Machine. It hosted an endless and often bitter debate about what the machine's combination of technology and magic had wrought on mankind. Tommy and Barb were fellow travelers. Each had their reason to hate the device and its uncanny ability. Tommy steadied her as she undressed, tracing her delicate curves with his eyes, following the cascade of long hair about her shoulders when she undid her ponytail. The dark strands flirted with the tops of her breasts. She should have been subverting society from the pages of a fashion magazine instead of driving getaway cars. Tommy doubted that many revolutionaries looked the way she did, moved with her grace. She glanced over her shoulder at him and smiled, as if she could peer inside his head the way the machine did into blood. It was a wicked grin, a silent invitation. She took mock pains to hide her body from his view as she slid under the covers in the lamplight. She patted the bed beside her. Her skin was warm and velvety against his when he joined her. She doused the light and wrapped her legs around him. They cuddled for a time after the sex, which had made him tingle and drained him of the remaining adrenaline from the evening, and he fell asleep to the whisper of suggestive words in his ear. He slept and dreamed of Davy. When Tommy was eight, his parents had sat him down in the living room and told him they were having another baby. His memories of Davy's arrival were faint, blurred together at the edges, a lingering sense of his mother's absence, spending the night at Aunt Ruth's with his cousins, Melanie and Sarah, and then the sound of crying and the stink of dirty diapers. By the time he turned eleven, Tommy had noticed the protective bubble his parents wrapped around Davy. Things that hadn't been an issue for Tommy at Davy's age were withheld from his younger brother. Toys with smaller moving parts, puzzles, board games. He wasn't allowed to pick up change, or stones that fit in the palm of his hand. His parents were phobic about Davy putting things in his mouth, about him not chewing his food, about any cold that produced a cough. One event haunted Tommy. When Davy was three, their mother flew into a frenzy of motion and sound, when she noticed Davy playing with a plastic grocery bag. He was bothering no one, piling his blocks in the bag and taking them out over and over. Ma tore the bag from Davy's hands, sending blocks tumbling through the air. Shaking, she stood over him, screaming, No! as if he'd soiled the rug. A lone block clutched in his quivering hand. Davy cried with a lack of comprehension that cut Tommy to the bone. Articulate, bright. Davy was always looking over his shoulder, petrified of running afoul of rules he couldn't predict. The sole time he tried to explain it to Tommy ended with a long sigh and a question. Tommy, could they love me too much? A week after he turned five, Davy died in his room, alone, a victim of his own curiosity. Out of sight for a few minutes, he'd taken it upon himself to explore forbidden fruit, denied him for so long, and snatched from a kitchen cabinet with everyone unawares a handful of peanuts. Anaphylactic shock was the official cause. 
Much later, when Tommy was in high school, his father added the missing college to the picture. Tommy's parents had consented to a machine test of Davy's blood at birth. The doctor had promoted it to them as a quote-unquote preventive measure. The little slip of paper spit out as a result read, Suffocation. We started out worrying he'd get strangled in his blankets, his father said. Then we focused on the size of things. We even considered allergies. He never had a problem with peanuts before. Dad, a man of small stature bowed even lower by his younger son's death, shrugged as if trying to loosen an unseen grip on his neck. What good is knowing the future if you can't do anything with the knowledge? They'd swallowed the poison punch, and Davy had died from it. Even if the machine was infallible, and Davy was meant to die young, it enraged Tommy that his brother's brief life could have been measures better if his parents hadn't tried to second-guess the future. Tommy had refused testing at every juncture from that day. He didn't want to know what waited for him. Barb's story was as senseless in its tragedy, trading an innocent brother for a pragmatic father. Her dad had given up living when the machine looked into his blood and foretold cancer. Even when his doctor confirmed the disease and declared it treatable, survivable for decades, Barb's father surrendered. He didn't want anyone to bear the burden or the uncertainty of a protracted fight. When the cancer consumed him in months rather than the years it might have taken, Barb was galvanized against the machine's unholy test. After long discussions online and the discovery that they were classmates, Tommy and Barb began to meet in the real world. More like-minded souls joined them over the course of a year. What began as a support group evolved into something else. They discovered in themselves the spirit of Berkeley, of Kent State. Radicals standing against the powers that be, taking back something stolen from them, reclaiming it in ways impossible through endless debate in a chat room. Tommy awoke to Barb shaking his shoulder. Pale pink light from the street lamp outside gave the shadowy room a spectral glow. Tommy rubbed his eyes and groaned. Phantoms of Davy, three-year-old hands still clutching a block and quivering, receding into the corners. You were whimpering, Barb said. Tommy nodded. Sorry. Dreams. Davy. He was quiet for a long time, listening to his own breathing. Barb laid a hand on his chest. Where are you? Thinking about tonight. The repeater at the mall. What about her? Barb wrapped her arms around him and eased his head onto her chest. He snuggled against her, sought solace in the sift of her fingers through his hair. All her life, she's been taught how to increase her chances of living a long life. Then one day, she learns she's going to die in some fashion she's always been told can be prevented. Maybe heart attack. She makes changes, quits smoking, improves her diet, joins the gym, and she keeps going back to see if she's tipped some cosmic scale to no avail. She might die of a heart attack when she's a hundred years old, except she's crippled inside by waiting for it. She stopped living her life. She's devoted it to her death. Barb kissed the top of his head. We did well today. We'll never know whose lives we may have changed just by breaking the right machine at the right time. For all we know, we may have shaped the opinion of a future leader who will finally outlaw the damn things. Still doesn't feel like enough, Tommy said. 
Half of what we trashed today will be back in action in a week or two. It's like trying to empty the ocean with a soup can. He stopped. Sighed. We need something bigger. More effective. A statement. Barb reached out and turned on the bedside lamp. For a few moments, Tommy's field of vision was a bright blot. As it cleared, he saw Barb, still beautiful and pale and very naked, rooting around the night table. She pulled a gray file folder from under a stack of notebooks and papers. I didn't want to say anything until I thought we were ready. She set the folder on the bed. Tommy leafed through it. Diagrams, floor plans, handwritten notes of conversations. What's this? he asked, fascinated by the photos of long hallways and large rooms filled with equipment. Barb slipped back under the covers beside him. This, Barb said, is as big a statement as we can make. Clem Fabrication Incorporated, located in Carruthers, 50 minutes down Route 171 from Barb's apartment, was the largest manufacturer of death-predictive devices in the Midwest. They'd come to Barb's attention via a Newsweek article discussing the company's efforts to meet the rising global demand for the devices. She'd done a lot of social engineering to gather information from workers, county engineers, technicians who made service calls at the plant. She used her smile and charm, taking pieces from every encounter to form a complete picture of a vulnerable site. We take out the key points in the assembly line, Barb told the group when they met to discuss their next action four days later. They were all still wired from the success of their blitz, and Tommy could see everyone was hungry for more. They gathered in Penny's suite on campus because it was the largest, plus it was in the Brewer dorms, where a large gathering would go unnoticed among the louder, more obvious frat parties. Belts, motors, the computers that control the operation? We destroy power conduits. We destroy the swing arms that do the detailed work on the guts of the machine. We put them out of commission for weeks, months. How do you propose we do all this? Roger asked. He ran a pro-machine website as a cover for his lesser-known affiliations. He was also a campus radio personality. A hammer's good one time, but it's balls for heavy work. Too time-consuming. We use localized shaped explosives, Barry said with a nod from Barb. He was a chemical engineering student who blamed the machine's predictions for hastening the suicides of two friends. Small, hot, hard blast, localized within a few feet. Like a cutting charge. You could snap the rear axle off a car and only nudge the engine. As if the words were insufficiently shocking, Barry pulled a sample out of his backpack. Non-lethal and inert, he assured them, but it drove Mitch from his chair. I signed on for small public disruptions, not bombs, Mitch said. The mall's the one-off drugstore machine, fine. Explosives are scary. We should step it up on larger medical testing locations instead. Doctors' offices, clinics, hospitals. If people think they're at risk, they'll stay away. That makes us look like terrorists, Tommy said. Isn't that what we are? Mitch persisted. Let's not kid ourselves. You think people in Mars aren't scared of a guy in a mask with a hammer? Right now we're stirring debate about the machine and what it does, not about ourselves, Barb said. The first time we threaten the safety of people with no interest in the machine... In a place of trust like a hospital, we become the bad guys. I understand that, Barb, Mitch said. For the first time, Tommy noticed the kid of 17 inside him. 
Tommy was accustomed to a Mitch who was calm, decisive, old beyond his years. Before him now was a boy, nervous and uncertain. I just think moving on to bombs is asking to get someone killed. It will be after hours, she said. Clean, surgical. We cripple the infrastructure, sing the corporation, make a statement to the press. We open people's eyes, wide to the issue. They debated a while longer. In the end, Barb required a unanimous decision. Mitch held out until he knew he was standing alone. He went on record that it was a bad idea before voting to go forward with the action. Once they were in agreement, they sat around the coffee table in Penny's living room and began walking through Barb's plan. They rehearsed for two weeks. They went over timings and variables until they could navigate the factory building with their eyes closed. Penny wrote the manifesto for mailing to the Tribune, the New York Papers, the Post in Washington, and the L.A. Times. They called themselves the Unknown Future Liberation Front, proud architects of last night's targeted strike. They took the evening before the operation to relax. Barb invited Tommy over to her place to blow off steam. Despite the sparkle in her eye and the excited ache he felt, he declined. Saying no didn't come easily, but he wanted some space, though he couldn't articulate why. Beyond her disappointment, he thought he saw hurt in her eyes, but dismissed the notion. That wasn't who they were. His roommate out of town for the weekend, Tommy stayed on campus. He ordered Chinese takeout to his room, hung out with a couple of girls from the east wing of the dorm, and watched anime until he fell asleep. His dreams were crowded with massive steel machines that towered over him, sharp teeth trying to draw his blood, ribbons of paper blotting out the sky, and inscribed with the words, Misadventure. His cell phone rang, piercing his sleep and dragging him up to consciousness. The room was bright with daylight. Sounds of student life filtered in from beyond the door. Tommy answered on the last ring before voicemail. He expected Barb or Mitch with bad news. A call to flee the dorm one step ahead of the police. The fate of all dozing rebels. Instead, it was his mother. His mother never called. She made small talk about the weather and his father's job and her current book club selection while Tommy stretched and threw on a layer of day-old clothing. When she finally ran out of stalls, she said, They're voting on a draft bill Monday for soldiers for the Middle East. I know, Ma, he said. It's college. We keep an eye on these things. They'd been talking about it for weeks, in and out of class. Had he not been involved in disrupting the machine, Tommy would have joined one of the protests. He had friends who would vanish on a straight line to the sand in the wake of such a bill. It'll be fine. These things get voted down every year. This one will, too. And even if it's not, I'm protected by the deferments. No, you're not, she interrupted. I'm an only child. Plus, there are very specific criteria for selection of college students. Believe me, I've looked into this. Don't make yourself crazy. Tommy, I had you tested when you were three years old. It was a graceless blurt, but it hit his chest like a finely tossed grenade. You did what? I always plan to tell you when the time seemed right, she said, and fell silent. Tommy could hear her ragged breathing into the receiver. Why are you doing this, Ma? Why now? He stopped. He didn't want to know. Hadn't wanted to. So long as no one else did. And here was his mother, the woman who overcompensated his brother into misery. The unknowable known to her. Not for a day or a year, but for sixteen years.
I wouldn't mention it if I didn't think it was important. How? he asked, even as a voice inside him told him to hang up the phone and walk away. What does the fucking contraption have to say about it? I don't want you to worry. That wasn't my intent. Just tell me, he said. You wouldn't have called unless you wanted to say it, so say it. There was silence by way of response. God damn it, tell me. It says, friendly fire. Tommy heard her begin to cry. You were three. Your father and I ignored it. When you have a little boy, combat is putting on a birthday party. You never showed any interest in the military. We saw no reason to worry until now. Tommy had always left room for the possibility that, someday, he would be tested. With his consent or against his will. He hadn't expected ambivalence as a response. But his immediate sense of it was akin to a shrug. It couldn't be changed. Why would it matter? He heard his mother swallow, half a continent away. Tommy, we made mistakes with Davy. Everything we tried to do, we couldn't, didn't, see it coming. We failed him. I think sometimes if we'd talked to him, explained it, we could have avoided it. Or at least put it off. I thought about telling you what your slip said after he died, but I didn't want to fail you too. Tommy was glad she was on the phone and not standing before him. The contemplation of violence had a twisted, calming effect. You don't get it. E even after all this time, you didn't fail Davy because you couldn't save him. You failed him because you never let him live. He paused, numb. At least you gave me that much. His mother started to speak, but Tommy buried it with a thumb of the button. She'd said enough. He didn't want to say too much. He turned the phone off and crawled back into bed. He considered calling Barb to talk through his newfound knowledge and decided it could wait until after their visit to the factory. He grappled with daylight, the prediction rattling around in his head, until he abandoned sleep in favor of a late breakfast. Zero Hour arrived in desperate darkness. Barb, Tommy, and the rest infiltrated the grounds in two places where the fence all but invited them, according to plan, and unaware that prying eyes were following their movements. Soft radio calls and infrared scopes tracked them from the shadows. Barb led Tommy and Mitch to the Assembly 2 building, and through an easily jimmied loading dockside door. The line inside was silent, populated with machines left mid-motion when the line was stopped for the weekend. The trio walked the length of the conveyor, identifying strike points from the packaging queue all the way back to the head of the line. The room smelled of metal, solvents, and sweat. Pallets of petrochemicals and drums lined the back wall. Tommy saw more of them, all part of a fresh delivery, through the doors that led to Assembly 3 in the adjacent room. Mitch went to work on the main motor drive for the line. Tommy wired a charge further down the line, on the computer control center that coordinated activity for the length of the belts. Barb sought the thickest bundle of cabling that fed the equipment. By Tommy's measure, they had seven minutes to finish wiring and fall back to the yard. The authorities waited for them to begin arming explosives before moving in. The head of the government's operation, a former Marine turned Homeland Security tactical consultant, wanted a bloodless takedown and an open and shut case. 
He envisioned a large and very public trial, something to quash grassroots protests and power his career forward. The first shot was fired by accident in Assembly 3. Penny, caught in the beams of a flashlight, reached for her ID. She thought she'd been caught by a watchman they'd overlooked in their planning. Instead, the man was a soldier no older than Penny herself, hyped up, overstimulated in his first anti-terror deployment. He was certain she was reaching for a gun. Roger, seeing Penny shot at close range for no reason, did have a gun and brought it to bear. The kid soldier died hard and fast. A second one, older by ten years, put out the call that he had a man down, that the terrorists were heavily armed. He was silenced when Roger shot him in the chest. It pivoted toward hell with Jack Rabbit's speed. The bark of a gunshot made Tommy jump. The report echoed through the room, seeming to return from a half-dozen locations. He had a gun, one of several they had obtained through back-alley channels, but Barb had been specific. Weapons were a last resort. If caught, surrender, with a polite warning about the explosives. No fatalities was her order. Next door, Assembly 3 erupted in a firefight, driving Tommy to a crouch. He was moving up the line towards the door, when hands grabbed his ankles from under the line, tripped him, dragged him down. A bullet tore into the sheet metal behind where he'd been standing. He was still fumbling for the gun when Barb put a hand over his. Come on, she whispered. They scuttled under the line towards cover. Several more shots echoed. Roger screamed somewhere in the darkness. The pair found Mitch crouched behind a skid of shipping boxes and joined him. We're screwed, Barb said. They're everywhere, and they're not asking questions. How did they know? Tommy asked. How could they? Mitch shook his head. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Thanks for the headline, Tommy said, and cocked his pistol. No, Mitch said. They said they were going to scare us. That's what they said. Homeland Security would arrest us and scare us straight. He looked at Barb and Tommy. He was terrified. That's what the guy told me. No one was supposed to have guns. They were just going to scare us. They swore to me. A voice called from the darkness, demanded they throw out their weapons. Tommy stared at Mitch. The kid's recent nervousness began to make sense. Oh, did it make sense. What did you do? Barb asked. Mitch's face twisted, anguished. I needed money. My kid's sister got into some trouble and had no one else to go to. My parents would have killed her. His voice faltered. They just wanted to know what we were up to. The guy who called me, he was hanging around the death board. He said they figured out who we were, wanted to keep us from screwing up. They made it like a job, and I needed the extra money. There weren't supposed to be guns. He craned his head up from behind the stacked boxes. You weren't supposed to have guns! He shouted. A shot crashed, and Mitch ducked down, right into Tommy's grip. Tommy shook him. Stupid shit! They used you! He shouted, shoving Mitch back into the boxes. He had to stop himself from doing more. He looked at Barb. Her composure helped him focus. We need to give up, Barb said. Tommy realized his desire to run, to fight his way out, was naked in his expression. Barb saw and read it and shook her head. We never make it, she assured him. He stared, nodded. That's why she was the boss. We're coming out, Tommy shouted. Don't shoot! He rose with care, 
gun hanging by the trigger guard around the thumb of his wide-open hand, arms stretched overhead. Barb followed suit. Tommy heard Mitch slip away in the darkness and found it didn't trouble him. Mitch was already dead to him. Tommy and Barb stepped from behind the boxes, frozen. They could hear footfalls in the darkness, glimpsed the passing of silhouettes across distant windows. They waited. A quiet, hard voice startled them from the left. This is for Dawes, the voice said, and Tommy heard a gun being cocked. He turned and saw the soldier in shadow. Tommy pivoted, gun back in his grip. Three shots overlapped in a hellish firecracker pop. The soldier fired a round that struck Barb in the arm. In turn, he received a bullet in the face from Tommy's pistol. As Tommy's gun barked, he felt a punch in his left shoulder. He twisted as he fell, saw the still-smoking automatic in Barb's hand. Tommy landed on his wound, the pain blinding. His arm went numb. Barb scrambled over to him, grimacing, issuing apologies under her breath. She examined him with frantic hands. It looks like it passed right through your shoulder, she said. Who's your angel? Wish I knew, he said, ignoring his mother's voice fighting to be heard above the din of his thoughts. Tommy's eyes picked Mitch out of the darkness, sandwiched between two of the nearby pallets of chemical drums, shouting obscenities, crying. He was no longer a revolutionary, instead reduced by his sins to a wounded youth. No one uses me. I'm nobody's Judas. The silver detonator shimmered in his hand. Tommy saw one of their charges, stuck to a 55-gallon drum. Tommy felt Barb's gasp. They heard nearby footfalls, soldiers unawares. Tommy rolled, shoved Barb to the floor and draped himself over her. There was nowhere to go, and no way for them to get there if there was. He had no idea if shielding her would make a difference. He didn't care. There was a new light in her eyes, admiration and sadness and warmth, mingled in a single gaze that told him here, at the end, she wished for something different for them. As the room transformed into thunder and flame, Tommy was glad he'd lived to see that look. For more stories about the machine of death, visit our website, machineofdeath.net. This audio file is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. That means feel free to share it, send it around, or adapt it however you like, but please don't sell it. I'm Zach Wiener, creator of Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal. Thanks for listening.